Welcome to Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha Kotalarsun with Behind the Schemes, and in this episode, we're talking about South Africa's rhino horn dealers with Julian Rademeyer, author of Killing for Profit, Exposing the Illegal Rhino Horn Trade. Your book, Killing for Profit, confirms that the trophy hunt operators who catered to Vietnamese clients knew they were facilitating pseudo-hunts. Should these hunters be held accountable as accomplices in trafficking rhino horn? I mean, didn't they didn't they have a responsibility to report this activity to, to the authorities since they did know that the horns were destined for the illegal trade? Well, you'd think they would, um, but clearly many of them turned a blind eye to it. Um, you know, I mean, if you if you talk to someone like David Grunewald, who's been implicated in, in um, illegal rhino horn trafficking um, and faces numerous charges, I mean, he's quite blunt about it. He says, you know, anyone who tells you they didn't know that the, the Vietnamese hunters were looking for, for horns for the black market is lying. Um, you know, his, his sort of take to me was that that is the only reason that they're looking for, for the horns. And clearly there were many hunters, well, you know, a fairly small grouping given the size of the hunting fraternity in South Africa, but um, a number of hunters who saw this as a way of making a quick buck. You know, um, they brought the hunters in, they um, quite willingly participated and arranged these hunts, um, knowing full well that the, you know, that the horn would probably end up on the black market. And, you know, most of them had the, had the sort of attitude, well, you know, it's not our problem what they do with the horn over there. Um, so I think, I mean, I think to a degree that, the, you know, something should be done. I mean, I don't think we've had enough um, follow-up as far as um, the key individuals who are behind these pseudo-hunts, and I think they should be followed. I, mean, I think there should be legal consequences um, because, quite, quite frankly, it's fraud. Um, you know, these were people who were taking South Africa's hunting legislation, which allows for limited hunting of rhinos, and, and using it and perverting it to essentially become a way of making as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, by bypassing loopholes and by bypassing the ban on, on rhino horn trade. Um, and what's interesting is, I mean, you know, many um, hunting associations in South Africa um, have sort of, you know, tread uh, or, or taken a very um, uh, quite a quite a uh, not not a very outspoken line about this issue. I mean, they haven't actually challenged it. They haven't condemned it as well as they should. I mean, I think they should be asking hard questions of themselves. You know, what were you saying to your members? Um, you know, one of the professional hunting associations here did warn members in uh, as far back as June 2009 that these hunts were shams, that they were fronting for Vietnamese crime syndicates, and they said, do not participate. But that was the only mention in years. Um, and in subsequent years, they never, ever made, you know, mentions of that. They, they tried not to identify in, in subsequent press statements. They wouldn't even identify the countries that were behind pseudo-hunts. They, they approached it in a very cautious line, and, and quite frankly, I don't think they did enough. Yeah, these are the very people that are supposed to be protecting rhinos. They're supposed to be contributing to conservation. They knew better. 
No, exactly. I mean, look, the, the, the idea behind South Africa's sort of conservation strategy, the you know, the concept of sustainable use that gets bandied around, is that what you take out, you put back. Um, so, you know, rhinos have a commercial value um, as, uh, you know, for, for trophy hunters. The idea was limited trophy hunting. Um, that would enable private landowners to make money off sales of hunts of individual rhinos, and they could then plough the money back into their game farms and back into conservation, back into breeding, back into buying more rhino. Um, and, you know, that essentially what's happened in the last few years, and particularly since the, the first Vietnamese hunters started coming here, um, that process has been corrupted. Um, you know, it became about making for at least for for quite a number of, of, of hunters and safari operators and breeders, it became a way of making money and making money very, very quickly. Um, you know, there was no thought going into some of the, uh, particularly some of the individuals, and this, you know, again, I'm referring to this fairly small grouping of, of professional hunters who would line rhinos up to be shot so that the trophies could be exported and it's essentially sold in the black markets in Vietnam. And there was no thought um, about conservation. It was all about the money. Ugh. And now that the truth is out, thanks again to your book, why do you think that Marna's style is not in prison the same as Lem Tong Thai? I mean, they knew what was going on. I mean, I understand... Uh, Lem Tong Thai's statement said otherwise, but why why the completely different punishments, if you will? Look, I think, I, I mean, I think in the Stale case, I mean, it has yet to reach a conclusion, you know, um, and, you know, he, he is innocent until proven guilty. Um, mm -hmm. The um, His case is yet to go to trial. It should be going to trial a bit later this year. Um, Essentially, what happened in that particular incident was the prosecutor who was, who was um, pursuing the case against them, um, there was a jurisdictional te technicality which led to charges being withdrawn. Um, they probably should not have been withdrawn, and that's been shown by the fact that the charges have now been reinstated against Dale and some of the other accused. Um, but it, it was worrying, you know, that... Um, something as, as small as that could, could almost scupper a case against people like that. Um, it did result in, for instance, one of the, the key individuals, Punpitak Chunchom, being um, allowed to, to leave the country, strangely enough, leaving his passport behind in South Africa. Uh, but, um, you know, he was able to, to get away. Um, and there's no way they'll, they'll ever get him back to, to stand trial. Mm -mm. Um, so it does raise some very serious questions about how, you know, was it incompetence? Um, you know, what, what actually went wrong there? You know, why were very simple court processes not followed? Why were the jurisdictional issues um, not sorted out? Those, you know, the fairly technical issues. Um, and But, I mean, what, what is encouraging at least is that the case has been handed to um, you know, one of the more senior prosecutors, one of the more experienced prosecutors in these kinds of wildlife crimes. Um, the same person actually is, is prosecuting David Grunewald. Um, there is, you know, a, a fairly senior team of detectives on it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens in, in the court case. But you do raise a very interesting point, is that very few of the South Africans who've aided and abetted um, these criminal syndicates are behind bars. Um, you know, it's very rare occasions when you see, um, you know, 
particularly game farmers or professional hunters, um, being jailed for their activities that 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 um, abet the acti you know the the actions of these um, crime syndicates from Vietnam and Laos, um, and that is worrying. You know why are there so many Vietnamese couriers sitting behind bars here? Why are the the middlemen sitting behind bars? What about the the source of the horn? Um, you know, there have been stories for years about um, some South African game farmers selling off essentially loose stock, as they called it, um, you know, horn that had accumulated over a period of time um, and, you know, from, from rhinos that had been dehorned. And, you know, some of the Vietnamese syndicates would come knocking and they would, they would sell the horn to them illegally. Um, so there are some very serious questions about that. I mean, I, I do think that there, it is problematic that, um, you know, so few prosecutions have followed as far as some of the more unscrupulous hunters and, and professional safari operators are concerned. Yeah, I think I can think of, <clears throat> excuse me, just five yeah. um, who, total in the, in the industry. Uh, South Africans in the industry who have uh, gone to jail, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Um, also, in your book, it confirms that uh, Davi Kurnevald and John Hume have a fairly close and regular association when it comes to rhinos. What does that say about the advocates of legalizing rhino horn trade. Am I the only person who finds that association to be rather um, disconcerting? <laughs> I think, I mean, I, I, I find it quite disconcerting. But, you know, if you talk to John Hume, um, his approach is very blunt. He says he'll buy a level himself. Um, you know, when I interviewed him, <laughs> that, you know, if, if he could um, essentially save a rhino from, uh, you know, uh, a pseudo hunt or whatever and buy the animal and take it away, then that's what he'd do. I mean, I think, you know, in many ways, um, you know, the, the relationship is, is, is a little worrying, but, it, but it's also, um, you know, I, I can also see it from, from John Hume's point of view. You know, he's in the business of, of buying and selling rhinos. Um, he does very limited hunting with black rhinos. Um, and I think, you know, you are dealing with very different people. Um, but, the issues remain the same, you know, with, with both Hume and both Grunewald are, are advocates of legal trade. Um, Grunewald's approach is, you know, these are my animals, I bought them, I keep them, I um, feed them, and I can do with them what I, w what, what I would like to, you know, what I will. Um, and, you know, Hume's approach is and has been for a long time, and I think, you know, that might be motivated by the fact that he has invested so much in um, the rhinos that he's bought. You know, he's speculating. He's he's hoping that trade will be legalized. He has amassed vast numbers of, of uh, vast quantities of rhino horn. Um, you know, I, he does challenge the the um, view that you know. I mean, it's commonly said that he would be the one of the wealthiest men in South Africa if he sold all the rhino horn that he has stockpiled. Um, and you know, his sort of challenge to that is he says, well, he doesn't really need the money. Maybe his, you know, um, his, his grandchildren use it or whatever. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's, there, there is, I mean, there have been those links. I don't, I don't think, uh, from, from what I, last I heard, I'm not sure that they are that closely associated any longer. Um, but you know, the, the idea behind it is, is essentially the same. And if you speak to many private rhino owners, most of them are pro-trade. Mm-hmm. Does it, you know, we're looking at uh, the new uses of rhino horn that's kind of the non-traditional uses that are causing, um, or at least have a lot to do with the crisis right now. Regarding uh, the, you know, the viewpoint that you just talked about, is there any concern that this would be a, a product, so to speak, that is either, one, being peddled to very desperate people for serious illnesses, uh, cancer, um, or two, just some sort of uh, luxury uh, hangover cure? I mean, is there is there any sort of concern about being... Um, about the about what the end product would be used for is there any sort of concern that that this would be taking advantage of very very sick people is there any sort of concern about that um from the the hunters and the game farmers yeah i don't i mean i don't really think so i mean i think you know their their focus is um on selling a hunt or you know selling the horns in effect um and you know, making money of it. I mean, you know, quite a number that I spoke to um, have absolutely no interest in what it gets used for um, in Vietnam. Prunavalt's one example. Um, you know, um, he's aware that it is being used there, um, but you know, the what what happens once it leaves South Africa? Most of them, their approach is it's not our problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Hmm. Because I've seen, you know, the the previous argument was, well, we can't stop tradition. This is what people want to use this for traditionally. There's nothing we can do about it. Okay, well, now, it, again, it's more the non-traditional use. And it just, you know, to me, it just seems extremely troubling that essentially you're looking at a bogus medicine that desperate people are you know, are conned into buying. Um, it's it's really it's sad. You know, it's not only the rhinos that are, uh, you know, that are in big trouble, but it's these um, people too who may be foregoing uh, medical treatment. No, I think I mean I think there's definitely an element of that. Um, you know, what what's also of concern there is that they're not only being conned into thinking they're being sold rhino, you know, or that they're buying rhino horn. I mean, a lot of the the um, stuff that's being sold on the streets to to poor people is buffalo horn or fake you know fake horn that's being sold. Um, so you obviously have uh, a lot of the the real horn is going to wealthy elites who um, or you know, up and coming businessmen or whatever who use it as a status symbol um, and quite frankly couldn't give a damn about where it comes from or what what the consequences are. Hmm. Um, and that right. you know, that's been shown. More recently, um, there was a case of a uh, one of the uh, the chairman of one of the second largest banks in, in Vietnam, who reported the theft of of two rhino horns from his house. Um, he had an eight hundred kilogram stuffed rhino in his house, Ew. which was shot in a trophy hunt in South Africa. 
and had been given to him as a housewarming gift um, ah. by Hunter. Now, you know, the police went and investigated the theft of the horns. Um, they haven't arrested the banker who has absolutely no legal right to that trophy. He's not the hunter who shot it. Um, you know, but but for him, it's a status symbol. Um, and the fact that, you know, he remains untouched is also indicative of the problem on, you know, on that side. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, it's a very powerful individual, very well connected, um, and clearly also untouchable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for sure. Hmm. There's, um, you know, speaking of the rhino horn trade, there's been a lot, a lot of talk about trophy hunting has saved the rhino in South Africa in the past and how illegal trade would save the rhino today. But with the global nature of the rhino horn trafficking situation um, where you have the involvement of international crime syndicates, uh, you have cell phones, there's more travel routes between Africa and Asia, that sort of thing, and the corruption that you've exposed inside the rhino industry. Is it realistic that South Africa could contain a legal trade? I mean, just complete, you know, let's, let's, the ethical stuff aside, (laughs) could South Africa contain a legal trade and keep it from affecting rhino protection efforts in other countries? I mean, I, I think it's a very difficult question. I don't think we, we know enough at this stage about um, the current trade and, and consumption of, of rhino horn. But, um, you know, given the high levels of corruption in South Africa, given the high levels of corruption in places like Vietnam, um, mm-hmm. China as well, I, I think it would be extremely difficult. Um, you know, I, I always say to people, I mean, you, you're not dealing with... Um, criminal syndicates who are trafficking in rhino horn. We're dealing with criminal syndicates who traffic in anything that moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they will traffic in ivory. They will traffic in pangolins. They will traffic in reptiles. Um, some of them are, have been linked to the drugs trade. You've got criminal syndicates in South Africa who've been linked to um, cash and transit heists, um, carjackings, who've also been linked to, you know, poaching incidents. Um I think it's I think it's a very very extremely complex issue, and I don't mm-hmm. think it can be easily sorted out. I mean, I, I think the debate around legalisation is a very interesting one, and I think it's one that should continue. Um, but I think we and I think we you know what what it would do is it would would help us to get a better understanding of the market that that the, the horn is going to ultimately. Um, the key idea that um, many of the people who are pro-trade are saying is, you know, essentially we've set up a central selling organization, um, a bit like, you know, the the central selling organization was set up um, to try and curb the trade in blood diets. Um, and, you know, trade in that they have um, input from or have shareholders from government, from South Africa's national parks, etc. Um, so either from natural mortalities or harvest the horn um, and try and sell it there. But the, the fundamental question is, who are you going to do business with? Mm-hmm. Are you going to do business with, with um, the Vietnamese government? Are you going to do business with um, private companies? I mean, at this stage, the only people who are trading in China horn are criminal syndicates mm-hmm. uh, and criminal syndicates that are linked to a host of other crimes. So I, I think a lot of questions need to be asked. I think the debate is health. 
Um, and I think, you know, the more we understand, the better. Um, and if we reach a point ever where, you know, one has to harvest the horn um, to, to essentially save the right from extinction, um, and we find a way where we can do it um, properly, you know, maybe then it's worth an option. I mean, I, I think we've hit the point where we have reached, um, you know, time of desperate measures. Um, what we're doing at the moment isn't working. Um, and we need to look at what can we do from here. But, you know, I think the, the sort of knee-jerk response that, you know, we will now go out and try and trade, I, know, I think it's a very, you know, potentially quite a dangerous one. I think we need to know a lot more about trade, about the market, about who we potentially do business with and whether it would actually achieve the stated goal of of curbing the illegal trade and and cracking down on that and actually would be beneficial to 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 saving um, rhinos um, and that that's what it's all about is you know how do you save this, this you know um, incredible animal that's been around for for so many hundreds of thousands of years um, that that is the issue that should drive it rather than just you know looking at it purely and coldly from a profit motive. Right. And also, what would be the effect on the rhino populations in other countries, not just on the African continent, but in Asia as well? There are rhino populations there in addition to the African rhinos. And it would it's hard to believe that if already we see this situation um, as a as a, a global crisis. I mean, there have been arrests related to the rhino horn trade in, you know, in the, in the U.S. and Europe. And uh, mm. it's, if, it seems like if the legal trade uh, were something that, that ever happened, uh, it would not have a very positive effect on the rhino populations in Asia and uh, I would I think that it would be problematic in the same way that the illegal trade is problematic right now. Mm, no, I think I mean I think you raise a very good point there. You know the the knock on effect. Um, um, you know we've seen it with I mean uh, the the poaching that's occurred in Africa. Um, mm -hmm. You know the intensity of poaching now in South Africa is is the consequence of what has happened in the, in decades past. Mm -hmm. um, this knock-on effect of populations being wiped out and, um, you know, steadily leading southwards. And I think, you know, the, the same thing be, you know, um, by, by trading in it, uh, what, what people who are opposed to trade would say is that you're sending a message. Yeah. Um, China has, for all intents and purposes, although, you know, we haven't had a decent survey since the mid-90s, but... China has, for all intents and purposes, done some quite a, quite a lot to crack down on the trade there. What sort of message would you be sending? Mm -hmm. um, how big is your potential market if you legalize trade? Um, you know, if if you if you legalize trade with Vietnam, surely then China would want to to reopen trade. What you know, I mean, I think all of this needs to be taken into account. Um, you know, I think it looks very attractive on paper. Um, the the um, possibility of trading, you know, or, and and the sort of economic theories that put up there, but I really think it's something we need to know a lot more about before we actually go ahead with something. Well, one of the 
examples, uh, bear farming, for example, um, there not only is enough farmed bear bile to satisfy the market, but the bear farmers, if you will, have excess bile and it's being used in all sorts of other products, um, shampoo, vitamins, that sort of thing, because they have so much of it. So they're creating new customers. So they're, they're growing the market. And it seems unlikely. I know that one of the arguments, so to speak, of legalizing trade is let's, let's, um, let's, let's satisfy the market uh, while we think of something else to do. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. Whoever heard of selling something so that they wouldn't be selling anymore. So, Mm. and, and again, with bears, we have, uh, you know, we have something else to look at. And then with the tiger situation too, the farming of the tigers and, you know, that hasn't helped wild tigers. So yeah. Hmm. Exactly. Hmm. So, speaking of big cats, what's the status of the lion bone trade? Um, that you know, that was very much linked to the major characters in your book. So, what's going on with that now? And the second part of that question is, what can we do about it? Well, simple answer is it's still going ahead, um, and it it appears to be increasing. Um, there are um, yeah, a number of of predator breeders who have got into this. Um, it's a it's a good way to make make money um, for them, and you know, essentially, you, often it's it's um, post reproductive females who are um, you know essentially killed for their bones. And the bones are sold on, and you know, um, as you know, as I described in the book, um, the the trade in lion bones was essentially what one of the the syndicates I focused on um, got into initially. You know, they they began by trading in lion bones, and that progressed into to rhino horn when the opportunities became available. But the I mean, the lion bone trade for me is a particularly you know horrific sort of trade. I mean, it's you know, it's essentially Killing lions because they they have more value just for their bones than anything else. Um, you know, it's stripping off the flesh. Um, often, sometimes they you know give the meat away, but generally it's just sort of burning it off, stripping it off, cleaning the bones, um, and then selling those bones on. And you know, there's no sign of of it um, of of trade slowing. Um, it it does appear to be um, continuing here and increasing here, and in other parts of of Africa. Um, and there's huge demand. You know, it's 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 a replacement um, for tiger bones. Now, if it's a, being used as a replacement for tiger bones, and whether it's advertised as such or not, don't you think that the lion breeders who you know, frequently say that they're doing their part for conservation. Don't you think that the responsible thing to do would be for them to say, hey, um, these people who are connected with the Asian syndicates or running Asian syndicates, whatever, are wanting to uh, buy lion bones and either, one, sell them sell them as tiger bones, which is illegal, or to create a, a market for these 
lion bones, which if we look at tigers is not going to go well, shouldn't, I mean, those are leads in, in trafficking cases, don't you think? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, I think it has given leads in some cases here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the predator or predator breeders in South Africa, it's a very tight knit, um, community of, of game farmers. Um, and again, it's all about the money. You know, we've, we've got a fairly horrific history here, particularly when it comes to, to lions, um, of, of canned lion hunting, you know, lions being kept in um, cages or being doped out and then set off to these sham staged hunts um, so that a big game hunter could get the trophy for his bar wall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is is essentially an extension of that. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an incredibly lucrative way of making making money you know if you've got um post-reproductive females which for you know a farmer for all intents and purposes are not worth very much um you know put them down get the bone sell. so yeah hmm well that's uh all very unsavory (laughs) no it is (laughs) so switching gears for a moment you are going to be at the CITES meeting in Bangkok. What are you going to be doing there? Um, I'm just going through, um, I'm doing some freelance work for a newspaper in South Africa uh, and looking at various aspects around it. I'll be doing some, some other uh, sort of broader wildlife trade um, investigations, some of it involving um, trade in apes, um, some of it relating to the ivory trade in the last few couple of months. So, you know, essentially it's looking at, at various aspects around that and then obviously also looking at the, the issue around rhinos and whether anything will come out of the, the CITES conference and whether anything new will come out of it that, that may be beneficial or not. Um, at this stage, I, I have to say that I fear not. Um, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. Hmm. So you mentioned another project uh, can you tell us about what you're working on now? Can you give us any more details about what your next project is? Well, I've got, I mean, I've got a few projects on the go. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an extension. I mean, I've, I think in, in working on this particular book, I've developed, um, you know, almost um, out of fascination with wildlife trade as a whole. Um, and, you know, I found myself doing work, um, quite a bit of freelance work in the last few months, um, much of in West Africa, focusing on um, the trade in chimpanzees, and then quite a bit of it also on the on the ivory trade and some of the syndicates that involved there. Um, and, you know, looking more broadly at, at um, even, you know, the, the legal wildlife trade um, and, and what, what that entails. How much of the legal wildlife trade do you think is a cover for illegal wildlife trade? Well, I mean, I, I can only speak to what I've what I've experienced, and quite a lot of it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I've I've seen it in, in West Africa with the trade in in, in birds. Um, you see it with the trade in chimpanzees. Um, you know, uh, chimpanzees that are, are sent off in consignments of monkeys. That are being legally traded, but the and the you know, for instance, the shipment of chimps will be hidden inside that that consignment. Um, you know, I mean, they they're incredibly ingenious. Some of the the traffickers that I've I've dealt with, um, 
at at getting animals out and getting them to their clients. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, um, quite a lot of the legitimate um, trade out of West Africa um, is is definitely a cover for, for something else. And, you know, quite a lot of the trade is, is completely illegal. Hmm. And it's aided and abetted by, uh, in some of the countries I've been to, by corrupt local CITES officials, you know, the people who are meant to issue the permits, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who are rubber-stamping dodgy deals and who are on the payroll of of these these criminal gangs. Hmm. Well, that'll be uh, that'll be very interesting. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> um, where can people outside of South Africa buy your book, Killing for Profit? Um, it's currently the paperback is currently available through Amazon.com and I believe Barnes and Noble. Um, a Kindle version has been available for some time through both of them, and then um, in Europe, various uh, branches of Amazon, Amazon UK, Amazon France, um, do um, also stock copies of the the paperback and the Kindle version. Okay, there's no excuses. Everybody can have a copy, and everybody needs to have a copy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Excellent book, and thank you so much, Julian, for speaking with me today. It was uh, great to chat with you again. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to South Africa's Rhino Horn Dealers with Julian Rademeyer, author of Killing for Profit, Exposing the Illegal Rhino Horn Trade. This is Risha Kota Larson with Behind the Schemes.